Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Why don't we just start there? How did you get involved with, uh, with MeUndies back yeah. in the day? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting story because I was, at the time, I was working, actually, I worked at a, a tech startup for about a year mm-hmm. in Boston. It was called CoachUp. Still around. Basically, the concept is Airbnb for private coaching. Yep. So we connect private sports coaches with young athletes for training sessions. I think Steve, Steve Curry, uh, Stephen Curry is, is involved in that, right? Yeah, yeah. Steph Curry, yep. Yeah, Steph. yeah, so we signed him as the, the face of the brand and... Yeah, he, it it was like an awesome timing because he signed on, I think, right early 2015. And that was the year that he won his first MVP and good timing ended up winning championships and all that. So how'd that deal go down? Man, I I mean, Jordan, the founder certainly led, you know, kind of the lion's share of that. I was, I was only kind of involved in the periphery. I was, I was actually, you know, leaving just about to leave. It was like 2014, but um, certainly kind of like deep in conversation, but I think like many things, it's a good reminder of uh, the best things take time. You have to be patient. You can't force things. And so I think that was a good, you know, even though I was just kind of involved, you know, on, on, you know, on a surface level, it was a good reminder of that. And then, so moving on from Coach Up, um, what was kind of the jump you made and what, what came after? Yeah, so it was, it was really, the impetus was just this desire to go move out west I've always had a connection to the West Coast. My, we grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, but my family, we've had, we have a lot of extended family in LA and Southern California. And so we go, go there growing up and it was just, I, I just always loved LA. So I just had this vision when I was a kid that I'd live in LA at some point in my life and ended up happening a lot sooner than I had thought. But that was certainly a motivation. The other motivation was, I really wanted to work on something that was tangible. Like I, I really enjoyed that about Johnson and Johnson. I was in a ro- rotational, uh, a management rotational program out of college, and so like working on like for us it was medical device, but just having something that you would we would sell into like doctors' offices, ORs, um, surgical centers, etc. And so that I really enjoyed the, like the tactile aspect of like you know creating a product, sharing it, selling it, and so. Those were kind of the two bits of criteria I had was somewhere on the West Coast and something in CPG. And at the time, one of my you know, closest childhood friends, still a very dear friend of mine, we actually have a business now together. Uh, his name's Dan King. He, we got to, you know, you guys should meet him at some point, but he, he was consulting for them, uh, for MeUndies at the time. It was like four or five employees still you know, certainly, you know, making a lot of like progress and momentum, but very, very early stages. And so 
I was just going out. I, my parents had just moved and I was spending some time out there. He's like, hey, just come to the office. Like, come check it out. I was getting bored just kind of like being at home, going to the beach. So I ended up going to the office and I just really fell in love with the environment. I mean, the guys were all really smart, intelligent, and just we were all kind of working toward it, you know, kind of a common goal. And so it started really casual, um, just kind of going to the office here and there. And then they were like, hey, do you want to do like a three month like consulting you know, kind of arrangement. And I was like, yeah, definitely. And it really started as just, uh, I, I think it was, it was, and certainly not by my own effort, but more just by chance, it was a really good fit because I think they were just reaching the stage where four, five, you know, six, seven people, you start to, you know, you can sit around a table and just communicate and just work together. But you start to build beyond that, communication starts to break down. You have to have like real, intention around you know communication decision making goal setting all that and that's stuff that i just naturally really gravitated towards so we yeah we just you know i i kind of they gave me a lot of like leeway and just you know kind of empowerment to just you know set you know kind of some of these policies or you know kind of processes in place and everything from like how do we hire how do we recruit talent to how do we set goals and thinking about like okr frameworks and what else, um, you know, performance management and even just uh, just even implementing processes across like different functions. So one of the cool things about MeUndies, especially back then, was that we pick packed and shipped our own product instead of using a 3PL. And so that it was a benefit because you're so close to the, the product and the customer experience. We could write handwritten letters for a given order on a moment's notice. Uh, but certainly there's operational challenges as you're scaling and growing a business so how do you think that you first of all it's super cool that they started implementing those processes so early on with four to seven people most of the times by the time a company starts looking at you know operations and stuff yeah. they have you know it's already a shit show and the person is coming in to fix stuff that's totally broken rather than like implementing systems ahead of time so you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for operations. Like we do have it uh, yeah. at our company and we're just, you know, 13, 14 people. Um, and some people frown upon that, like, you know, hey, why are you focusing on that yet? So I'm curious, like what kind of impact that had, do you think that had on the business, you know, getting ahead of it and implementing yeah. those operations from so early on? Yeah, I, I think it was beneficial. I, I speak with some hesitation because um, also I think it's a good qualifier to say that we didn't over-architect, mm -hmm. which I think is an important call out. Right. I think it's that balance of putting in a great framework and processes, but also being really flexible with it too. The way that I think about it visually is like, think about scaffolding versus like building an actual building. Mm -hmm. So a startup, like if you were, you know, kind of metaphorically to build this building, it, it's pretty rigid. It's not, you're not able to like kind of break it down and build it up again so quickly. So scaffolding is a really good example or just kind of visual of, you want to put in process and structure and you know just have clear intention about how you're building things mm -hmm. but also have it be done in a scalable way that's really flexible malleable um, so that it can continue to grow and evolve as as the team grows and the company grows and the thing that i've always reminded myself and even our team is process should serve us we shouldn't serve the process and i think that's a good reminder because sometimes we become at least, you know, maybe to my own detriment, will become so focused on like 
executing a certain process. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's not the process that we're going after. It's the process should serve as a means to an end. So, yeah, I think, I think it is a balance as you mentioned, because, you know, sometimes at that stage, some departments are just one person yeah. and it's like, well, that maybe you don't need to document all of this because you're the only person who's like doing demos, for example. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, and then Terry, so like kind of moving on from there, once you guys had gotten everything set up, like yeah. in the early days, well, first of all, what was the, why don't you paint the landscape of like, you know, e-commerce at the time, yeah. um, MeUndies, who you guys were, you know, competing with and what like yeah. the marketscape, um, the landscape looked like at that time. Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. So this was tw summer of 2014 when I joined the company and it was a different, different era, I would say, just for direct to consumer. And so MeUndies, just I think to kind of set some context is, uh, an underwear loungewear brand uh, and based out of LA. And and so we were naturally kind of focused on other brands within the space. So I think Mack Weldon comes to mind, even um, a brand like uh, Tommy John that wasn't, you know, e-commerce direct to consumer, they were more like wholesale, um, but they were also, you know, one that was, was prominent. Stan Socks as well. They had, oh, I think I they got them. into the underwear space around 2015. So they were, we were aware of them and then certainly the the large incumbents right so you have like haynes and victoria's secret and so um so that was kind of from like a you know kind of direct competition you know perspective the other thing i think is that in terms of how do you grow and scale a brand at that stage and we relied really heavily on on facebook and paid social but um, and then we also really piloted podcast advertising and that was really novel back then it was and and Dan, who you know was our CMO there, and um, he can certainly speak to this much more intelligent intelligently. I'm I'm not I'm certainly not a marketer, um, so I might be butchering some of this stuff. But it was it was a time when you could you could act you would actually negotiate directly with the talent. So we worked with Joe Rogan, we worked with Bill Burr, we worked with Tim Ferriss, and they didn't have teams that were you know kind of working their podcast show. So it was dealing directly with the talent and the, you know, the CPA, the conversion rates that we were seeing were just incredible. And it was, it was one of those times where you're just reminded that, um, wow, this is like a special opportunity and it's like the wild, wild west. And so like, let's, let's go and go for it. And I, I think at some point, um, we were a top 10 podcast, podcast advertiser in the world Oh wow! Um, as a small brand, but we just, I, I think, you know, right timing, right place and yeah so and and also i think good to preface back then like podcast advertising was pretty novel and new and so to have this like you know have this host speak about meundies in this really native organic way where it didn't feel like an ad read was awesome and so i, I remember bill burr like he came up with like a meundies jingle and it was like it caught on and, you know, a lot of the fans and customers would really kind of gravitate toward that. So I think I think from a marketing channel perspective, it was certainly, you know, less saturated than what we see today. And uh, that was, I think, amongst other things, like um, one of the key like differentiators or unfair advantages we had is just a marketing team, an ethos, a mentality of just like testing, experimenting, uh, not afraid to take chances or make mistakes or go for it. Like another thing that we did was 
um, I think it was in the Super Bowl leading, I think it was like the Super Bowl uh, in 2015 or 2016, the Seattle Seahawks had a running back named Marshawn Lynch. And he was running into the end zone and he took, he pulled down his pants before he jumped into the end zone. He got fined for it. And so we were like, this is incredible. We're going to pay for his fine and, you know, create like a moment around it. And so we ended up like having some of the largest outlets, ESPN included, talk about, you know, this, this random underwear brand in (laughs) Yundi's sponsor and not only sponsor but like pay for marshawn's fine and we got a lot of a lot of like mixed reactions and responses around it but i think it was one of those moments around like oh it was incredible brand awareness and it was at the end of the day you know really cost effective because uh, of just the impressions and kind of energy it generated so that's amazing in in terms of like looking at the landscape and always being able to pick out those unfair advantages and opportunities where maybe not everyone else is looking for for activation. But, um, and then just in terms of setting a a bit more context, why don't you just tell us a little bit of like, so, you know, you you gave us the the scoop on like where MeUndies was when you started, how you guys grew, um, what, where did MeUndies go? Where are they today? And what did you kind of oversee while you were there? Yeah, for sure. So I, that, that three month engagement ended up turning into a full-time opportunity. And I was really blessed to have people that believed in me. I think that's always, you know, just to have, you know, whether it's colleagues or bosses or managers that believe in you, it's just such a, it's such a tailwind. And, and so it's something that I'm like kind of reminded of as I, as I continue to, you know, kind of build into my career, but um, specifically two people um, in addition to Dan, but um, is one was our founder, uh, and now, you know, current CEO, Jonathan Chokrian. And the other was our fa- CEO back then named Brian Lalazarian. And, and all of them are, you know, very, very good friends. We, you know, shared a lot of, you know, great memories together. I, I probably spent more time with Brian than his wife, you know, during that like <laughs> three yeah. years, you know, stint. So, and, and Jonathan's, you know, a, a dear friend of mine. We, we still kind of catch up regularly. But um, having the backing of those guys, um, you know, meant everything. Cause I, I had never served in a, you know, in an operations capacity, let alone COO, but you know, they could see not only the potential, but the desire, the shared values and vision. And, and so just really kind of put me in a, in a great position to succeed. But the company now is, I, I don't know in terms of, you know, exact numbers, so don't hold me to this, but you know, certainly well over a hundred million dollars in revenue Company's probably been profitable since 2015, which I think is, such a, a focus now, given the, the current economic environment. And um, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that the, the people that I was able to play a small part in hiring or developing have gone on to you know, grow within the company or gone on to start their own companies. Uh, like for example, uh, you know, uh, there was a, a woman we hired named Ellen Sweeney, who she was our office manager and she grew to lead people operations. Um, I think she recently left the company to kind of move the family out east. But, you know, her story is really inspiring to me because you had someone that you could tell she had so much like potential and just, you know, it was all about just like, again, putting someone like that in a position to succeed and just kind of guiding. And you know, she did the lion's share of the effort, but to play a small part in that was really cool. So um, I think about things like that where you have you're blessed to be part of a team and those individuals go on to do incredible things. Like another person is, you know, our people, head of people ops back then, 
is now a co-founder in our place, which is one of the fastest growing e-commerce brands agnostic of category. So that's that to me is like kind of the cool part. And uh, and then the friendships too. I think to, you know, have an experience like that and you know, I mean you guys know first firsthand, right? Just building a startup, it, it it's pretty consuming, all in, all consuming. And so to be able to come out of that experience, not only with the memories, but also strong friendships moving forward in life, I think is really special. And free underwear. Free underwear. Yeah, yeah. I still wear MeUndies for sure. 100%. Yeah. So how long ago, so how many people is MeUndies now? And how long yeah. ago was this? Just to get a sense of yeah. time frame. So that time frame was 2014 to 2017. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know on headcount, but certainly well over 100. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but we, I, I think even back then we were, you know, probably close to 40 or to 60 by the time I left. Okay. Um, and so and what was like, old. what was falling under your, um, into your wheelhouse in terms of like responsibilities, especially as you guys grew? Like, what were you, um, what were some of the efforts that you were heading up and really, really focused on yeah. when you guys were growing? Yeah, I think, I think direct responsibility for people operations. So that for us would include everything from hiring, you know, developing ta- talent, like retaining talent as well. Um, and so uh, people operations, the also customer service, customer experience and fulfillment, those two really worked hand in hand for us, given that we did both of those in-house. So that was kind of the main focus. And then I would say, um, at least my mentality kind of in the role was, um, how do I show up and bring great energy? I, I know it sounds really simple, but just being present, being available for the team, um, having a real strong, close pulse to like what's going on in the company. Because I, I think what happens, and it's probably one of the biggest, was one of the biggest learnings for me as a, as a young executive, or even now as a, as a founder, is that as the company grows, um, there is more of a tendency for you as the founder to hear what you want to hear versus what you need to hear. You could chalk it up to politicking. You could chalk it up to you know people almost over revering your position as like a leader in the company. And so I think establishing strong relationships with people within the company that are going to tell you like it is and be really honest and not afraid to voice their opinion was something I really valued. Um, and so I, I come from a sports background. I played college, you know, soccer. Played soccer throughout my life. And so understand like kind of building teams like you know, working within a team has always been really fascinating to me. It's how is that really different enjoy. now as a founder, you know, yeah. to get that, you know, what, how do you apply that framework? Do you, do you have to take a different approach to get that kind of feedback and insight from your own employees? Because I'm sure employees yeah. feel differently sharing that with a coworker yeah. or with somebody else who is not necessarily the, the founder. Would you say that's the case? Yeah. So just in terms of, just them sharing, you know, team members sharing like what they, you know, what you need to hear versus what you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if there's like one solve for it. I I think it's got to be a multi-pronged approach. I think it starts with this answering this question of how do I create a safe environment? And safety is one of those things that I've come to really value as like the key critical ingredient for a successful team. Um, I remember reading this book called The Culture Code by, I think it's like Daniel Coyle. And that, I mean, he, he 
kind of creates really strong association between strong team performance and, and safety. And safety is an interesting word because I think especially us being here in Miami in 2022, our lives are not in danger. You know, certainly there's a lot of things that are happening in the world um, and, and even in, you know, this city or in this country. But I would say like our safety is not really in danger in the moment, right? Knock on wood. And so it's not something that we think about on a maybe on a conscious level, but like subconsciously or subliminally on like a first principles, like biological human level as, as a human being, safety is like something that we think about all the time. Because you think about like that, the, this, the fight or flight response, it's rooted in, in safety or danger. And so it's, it's, uh, it translates to the workplace in ways that we may not even be aware of. And from the perspective of down to like, when you, when you, bring somebody on, you know, as a new hire, it's, it's a new environment for them. They're wondering like, okay, do I belong? Like my coworker, you know, there's all these questions. And so how do you kind of build this relationship, this level of trust where they do feel safe? Um, and so I don't think there's like one easy way to, you know, kind of approach it, but I, I think it is like starting to think about intentionally how you create a safe environment. And then I think it's also asking and inviting for feedback and, praising and validating when you hear honest feedback that may feel a bit scary for someone to share. Mm -hmm. That's something that we talk a lot about at Rosaluna is this mentality of like bad news should travel fast. And it's kind of counterintuitive because the good news is like the tempting thing to like want to travel fast and share, right? It's like you want to share the wins. You want to share the exciting stuff. Are you willing to share, you know, the bad news, the challenges, the fuck ups, the failures, right? And I think that's something that we've tried to be really intentional about is that the problem is never the person. Um, the, the issue is the problem itself. So let's focus our energy there. So certainly you can hold people accountable and, and all that, but like, how do we direct all of our energy toward solving, you know, the problem? And the best way to solve the problem is by like surfacing it, so. I, I love that as, as a framework that bad news should travel fast because then it's just about transparency yeah. and you're building trust at the end exactly. of the day, right? And then yeah. to your point, it's more about, okay, there's this problem, let's solve it together as yeah. opposed to like finger pointing and you trying to do something and then people being upset that they're left out of, um, of a situation. So I think just in terms of like frameworks for team building and trust building and creating an environment that people can feel safe in in, in the workspace, that's... That's an awesome framework. I like that because, you know, the other angle is like full ownership, full accountability. And like, yeah, that sounds really cool. But like, eventually people are going to stop because if you, you know, you have to take full ownership, you have to take full accountability, then people get pinpointed for a problem. They might, you know, the, the, the problems might not rise as fast to the surface yeah. as they should because the full ownership you know, um, culture, like not everyone wants to be the one saying like, Hey, you know, um, yeah, that, that was my fault rather than like, Hey, this is a problem that we all had a part of and we should all just like work together towards fixing it. Yeah. hundred percent. I was just like, I forget the book, but there was like a really good reference of, uh, Ford had hired the CEO, um, blanking on his name. I think Will Alley is the last name. And I think he came from Boeing potentially again, fact check. I don't, I don't know. But, uh, the, the story was like, you know, he would have these, like, you know, started out in the CEO role and, 
and had um, these leadership meetings with his executive team. And he'd be like, hey, so, you know, what are the challenges? What are the problems? And, you know, at first nobody would share. And, and it, like meetings would go by. And he'd have to like, I think to the point where he had to, you know, shift the culture, shift the mentality to where, no, 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 guys, this is not by surfacing a problem or an issue. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because no one's going to be perfect, right? So that's another thing that I'm reminded of is when you talk about creating safety um, within a team or building trust, we, we're, it's, it's not only about this person getting acclimated to your environment, your team, but also being aware of the team and culture that they've been used to in the past, right? And if the status quo is one where bad news doesn't travel fast or it's frowned upon to, to, to bring up challenges or problems or issues, then you have to almost reverse that, right? So a lot of our conversations, especially with teammates who are new, is like resetting the culture, like ingraining people into our mentality and our ethos of like, okay, I understand that that's how you did things at previous companies, but this is how we do things here. And being really convicted and clear about that. What are some of the things that you guys do differently that yeah. most companies sure. you know, might do in a standard way? Yeah, I love this question. So um, I would say, I'll start with, I think, the, the main one. We, I, I think the simple way to kind of boil it down is like to build sustainably, to play the long game. And what I mean by that is we're not the startup that is trying to move the fastest. We're not the team that is uses language like ASAP and as soon as possible, et cetera, et cetera. We're not the team that works 24 seven. We're not the team that will just optimize for speed at the sacrifice of other things. We're gonna be a bit more thoughtful. Um, again, there's no right or wrong, by the way. I think, I think it's important to point that out. It's just more about being clear about wh what you are and sticking to it. I think that's what integrity is, is like outlining like clear values and just like sticking to that, right? And so we're, we're just, I think we really take this, a sports analogy may be like helpful here, but if we're playing this, like if we're running this marathon of building a startup or a brand, an enduring better brand, right? A durable brand, um, we think a lot about the pace. And so I feel like a lot of startups that I've been involved in or heard of or had you know, some connectivity to, the pace is like sprinting all the time. And I just personally don't think that's sustainable. So what we coach our team on is let's find a sustainable pace, a pace that we can keep for the long run. There's going to be moments where we have to sprint. We're actually in a season right now where we're sprinting. Um, but then there's going to be seasons where we're jogging, you know, and I think giving the team permission to slow down and think thoughtfully is, is something we, we coach on a lot. Um, it's actually been quite challenging to be honest. Yeah, I bet. We've, we've faced a lot of resistance to that. Well, you know, so. the, the part that I foresee as potentially being challenging is how do you find the balance, right? And people not getting too comfortable when you're jogging and then not being able to adjust back into sprinting yeah. or, or vice versa. There's people that always want to be sprinting, right? But yeah. um, I think it's, it's the former that I mentioned, which is like, 
you know, we're jogging, but like it's sprint time, it's go time. And, you know, having the, 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 the capability to switch, you know, for that yeah. switch to go off in, in the brain. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's certainly that switch is tough. Um, the one way it surfaces in terms of like some tension is confusing pace or a, a, a sustainable pace for laziness. And they're actually quite different, but I can see how they get confused pretty easily. And so that's something that we try to really coach the team on is like, like, for example, like um, we really, Nate and I, Nate's my co-founder. He's actually my best friend as well. We're both uh, co-founders in this business called Rosaluna, uh, Mescal brand. And we have two other co-founders, Pepe and Freddie and an incredible team. So I think just kind of helpful context there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so Nate and I, we ascribe to this, let's call it like the 24 or 48 hour rule. And so if there's like a big decision or something, maybe like emotions are running high, whether it's even between us or with a teammate or, you know, a big decision is looming with an external party, we sit on it. We're not optimizing for speed. And I think there's so much clarity that comes from just a good night's rest mm -hmm. and approaching the, the decision with like clear eyes and like a renewed perspective. And so some could argue that that's lazy because, oh, that's a decision I was made aware of yesterday, so I should have made it yesterday. And because today brings about its own set of decisions and challenges to navigate. But our thought is, hey, let's take our time because if we jump into and make a decision that feels rushed or hurried, we might be taking three, four steps back that actually in the long run slows us down. And I think going back to the sports analogy of running a marathon, have you guys run a marathon before? I have not. Blaine, Blaine runs one, I think. No, I don't run marathons, but I was on the track team yeah, in college. Yeah. Uh, and I, ran, I used to run cross country. I think the furthest I've ever gone was probably like a half marathon. But um, yeah, you don't want to go out too fast, that's for sure. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you get it, right? So just, you know, if you go out sprinting from the start, you'll burn out and and to the point where it, it would be better like you'll sprint as hard as you can and then you'll just end up walking for the rest of the race and you would have been better off like it's the, the classic tortoise versus and hair. and and it hurts too the, the crazy yeah. part is like you'll go out fast and then not only will you end up with a slower time like those last however many miles are like yeah. incrementally more painful than totally. if, you, if you like you know you take yourself out slow, controlled, and intentionally. Yeah. Um, and one thing I wanted to bring up that you kind of hit on in terms of like the idea of like that safety and the fight or flight response and all this kind of stuff. I think it's really easy, especially for a startup when stakes are really high to like live perpetually in this like fight or flight mode. Yeah. Um, and that leads to burnout quickly and yeah. burnout is it's, it's a real thing, right? When, when you're, when the human mind is like in a constant state, of stress and you go into long-term stress, you're functioning differently than when you're in a clear, calm, collected, intentional sort of state. So I think what you're saying, it, it all kind of relates, the, the safety element, the being intentional, the pace, how do we move at the right pace? How do we make sure we're not making rash decisions that mean we have to backtrack before we can move forward? Yeah. It all kind of relates. Well, yeah. one, of, one of the things that I think is like, 
the most challenging part as a founder, especially if it's, you know, your first time around or even probably even up your second, it's like, it's really hard to measure the order of magnitude of like a problem or a decision because there's not enough data inputs to like, what do I measure this up against? Whereas like a marathon, okay, I have experience running. I know my time. I know the distance. I know the distance yeah, yeah. of this marathon, but like, it's, it's funny to like, you know, have this framework of like, oh, make fast decisions, but not all decisions are, have the same order of magnitude of 100%. impact. And so like, if one decision, which often can have a massive, you know, years lasting impact on the business, why would you rush that? And so measuring that is something that I could see as the problem because even like, you know, in time to sprint, like you have so much experience in being in companies that have been ran so great that you've been a part of. But I'm thinking about the person that hasn't had that experience. It's really hard for them to know in the lifeline of yeah. the business where they're at. And so you don't have anything to compare it to. So you're sprinting the whole time. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, you know, that experience that, that you've had has, has come to serve you really well because you know the kind of marathon that a business is all yeah. the way from zero to like 100 million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly not all decisions are treated equal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or they're not equal. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's something that we think about a lot. And uh, certainly we haven't figured it all out, uh, but things that we think about. And I, I think run, you know, going back to your original question of like, maybe, you know, something that makes us different than, you know, other companies. I, I think so much of startup culture, maybe even, you know, kind of American culture is like, you know, fast, 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 like, I'm reminded of like Facebook's old ethos of like move fast and break things. We're like almost like the exact opposite in a way. Uh, and, uh, and I'm proud of that because I think when you build a brand, and this is something I talk about with Nate all the time, is you have to take a perspective. You have to take a stance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard nowadays because of cancel culture and just there's just people that will tear you down. And so it's it's almost easy to play like the Switzerland, like not take a stance. But I think I'm reminded that the best brands, they take a stance and they're unwavering, unapologetically strong in it. And that's something that we're reminded of as we build Rosaluna, both internally in terms of our team culture and externally in terms of our communication and storytelling with the consumer. So. I think that's a great point because if you don't, either somebody else in your company will or your company as a conglomerate will without you knowing you're hiring. And then, you know, uh, th there's there's companies that have been torn apart from a bad apple within the company building the entire culture and then it being too late yeah. for you to eventually do that by the time you do realize it, that that's something you should have done from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, just to dig into that further, think about like if 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 our mentality as as a startup like let's say one of our core values was um be smart right like who who would say who would want to be the opposite of that right <laughs> yeah be dumb right yeah. just no one would be on the opposite side of that so to me that that's not a core value that really has a lot of substance or foundation because there's there's no other compelling side there's not a compelling argument for the other side but if you say hey our team and our decision-making is rooted in playing the long game. There's a lot of other companies and teams 
that optimize for the short term, that optimize for speed. And so that to me, like you start to discover something interesting there. When, you, when, when somebody is willing and, and often stands on the opposite side of you know, the, the table. Mm-hmm. So when you basically setting up values where there's people on both sides yeah. and by having all these values laid out, clearly stating which side you are on all the different values, you're able to pr- bring in people who share those values and the ethos of yeah. the company that you're building. Yeah, you're better able to find and identify talent because you're like, oh no, that person, it doesn't seem like she'd be a fit because it seems like speed and you know moving quickly is important to her, you know? based on her past work experience, how she talks about successes and wins. And so you're able to kind of find that out. Another thing that we talk a lot about with our team is over-communication. So we launched as a company during the pandemic and we're effectively remote. We have a, a studio in New York where most of our creative marketing team works, but certainly our team is global. Like we're in Mexico, US, et cetera. And so uh, over-communication has become a core pillar of what we're doing. and. You know, over-communication, it sounds nice, but it requires a lot of effort, actually extra effort to, to go the extra mile in terms of communicating things or explaining things. And it's, you know, we're, we're certainly held accountable as like, you know, from the top of right. like, how are we over-communicating things? And it takes time, you know? And so I think even, and certainly we'll continue, but for the first year and a half, Nate and I, we spend a lot of time with the team, spend a lot of time with our team, um, coaching them, even just sharing our ethos. Like we've been blessed to spend, uh, you know, the past few days in Miami with one of our teammates. And, you know, we preface, you know, one of our conversations by just saying, hey, uh, we're going to purposely kind of overshare. It's going to feel like a lot, but the goal is for you to understand like how we think about this stuff and get a sense of like our like decision-making framework and, you know, how we approach, you know, different things. So especially in a remote world, right? We're like, even in a remote a remote world most companies are pushing to like less and less meetings which is like well less meetings were already remote enough like yeah, yeah. and then you know you're, you're in a world where like every company is offering up a bigger salary bigger then how do you expect any retention or, or or to actually build you know um a team where people really stand for what it is you believe as a, as a founder yeah 100 percent uh one one other thing just kind of on this like playing the long game um one question I, I've had as I've, you know, just kind of worked in startups for the last decade is just like, like, what, what's, what's the hurry here? Like, I, I think building a brand, at least for me, selfishly, is the best part. It's never like the exit or the win or whatever. It's, it's, it's just building. Right. And so for, for and, and Nate is certainly very aligned with that too. So our thought is like, how do we just enjoy it's so cliche, but how do we just enjoy the moment? And we want to do this for a long, long time. Yeah, We don't want to have develop this unhealthy relationship with our business or with our team or wh- whatever it is um, because we, you know, burned ourselves out. That would be, I don't know, that, I, I feel like that would be something that we would deeply regret. So uh, I, I think we're blessed in that our business wasn't meant to be a business. We didn't have a business model. It was frankly an excuse to spend more time as best friends and and share something with our friends i we actually a trend we have uh, so pharrell is one of our investors and i get to do some calls with him and i had a call with him and i'm like 
how do you do music? How do you do businesses? And like, how do you keep just like, what is your, you know, your, your area where you know what to double down on? How do you stay like in the zone and perform at all these different verticals? He's like, he said the same exact thing. He's like, you have to do what doesn't feel like work for you. And if we, like you love building something and doing something, like forget about the size of the market. Like if build for you, like do things for you, you are the customer, you are the audience. It's true to you. And um, that, that really resonated. Um, one more thing I, I wanted to ask before we move on is up on that path of, um, you know, uh, interviewing and, and uh, like culture and interviewing someone for the culture. Uh, I know a question that a lot of founders might have, which is certainly something I've come across is when you come across a potential candidate that, you know, is like perfectly qualified for the role or overqualified has, you know, you know that that person has the exact skills of what you need, but the cultural fit might be a little bit off. And then you have a potential other candidate who's like on point with the culture and just might be missing a few things in terms of skills or qualities they need. How do you look at that challenge when you come across it? Or, or you know, what is which of, of the two is the one you would optimize for or choose? Yeah, I think it's a little dependent on the team and the culture. So, for example, like if, if our mentality was like, talent trumps all, then we'd probably go for the former, right? And figure out a way to like kind of mesh. You actually, I'm a big MBA fan. You kind of see it in the MBA where you have these kind of superstar teams or, you know, like the big three and you'll just optimize for the best talent and just we're like, all right, we'll figure out the, the, the camaraderie and the chemistry as we go along. I think about it in the other way where I'd rather have strong team cohesion like shared vision, shared values, everyone on the same page working together. And if that means, you know, sacrificing a little bit on the talent, you know, that's something that we're okay with. Uh, I, I think the, the, the caveat that I would want to lean into and kind of uncover is, is there, what is, is this person, does this person embody a growth mindset? Is this person open and receptive to feedback. Mm -hmm. Right. And and if you have somebody in my mind who is hungry and excited and aligned with everything that you're building and you combine that with like an openness and receptivity to feedback and growth and has shown a track record of that, mm -hmm. I'll pick that person all day mm -hmm. for sure. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's really hard to. Yeah. It's all good. Um I, I think it just depends on, like you said, on the culture of the yeah. business, you know, yeah. like there's there's teams that have done it with, yeah. you know, both totally opposite approaches. There's teams in the NBA that have come out of nowhere totally. just because the team is like so in sync. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, the big three that are unstoppable no matter what. To me, you know, that's why Tom Brady is like one of my favorite athletes. Like yeah, the yeah. fact that he just got on the Buccaneers and got the Super Bowl, like that says a lot, right? Like Patriots, everyone's like, oh, Patriots. Like he's got everyone, like, you know, it's the best team ever. Um, and then, you know, he goes into the Buccaneers, which is, you know, I lived in Tampa for college. I didn't even go to a Buccaneers game from how bad yeah, yeah. they were during those four years. Um, and what's the guy, he, uh, Gronkowski, like he rallied up and like, 
he's he's a leader, right? Like he built the culture of that team that uh, previously didn't have one, and and they were able to win the Super Bowl. So it, it's whatever works for you as a leader. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yo, Terry. The the next question I'd have in terms of like, um, you know, what you guys are building at Rosa Luna. Yeah. It's a story that I love because like I this is it's a brand that I've gotten to see getting to know you over the years seeing from like the earlier stages and seeing you guys grow to where you are today. So for anyone who's listening, um, if you like Mezcal, like Rosa Luna is the absolute best. Um, and it's been really cool to see you not only start the brand, grow the brand from, from scratch and ideate what the brand is about, how we're going to launch this product and really make it about the brand. But then, you know, every time I see you, um, you guys are doing cooler events, getting, you know, getting placed in better and better restaurants if you're in you know any major city in the u.s if you're like in miami for example we go down and uh, go down to soho house and it's like the the house mezcal and or you go to carbone and it's the mezcal there so like you know it's been awesome to just witness the brand grow and you kind of just check just like keep pushing and every time you come back you're like oh we got this these guys we got these guys um and seeing the brand grow so why don't you take us back a little bit to um, one, the inspiration for creating the brand? I know it's something you wanted, you've had an idea around for a long time. So why don't you give us a little bit about one, the inspiration for the brand and two, once you guys um, decided you were like, okay, it's go time. What, what were the first steps and how'd you get going? Yeah, for sure. So just, I think in terms of the Genesis, uh, quite simply, Nate and I both love Moscow and I, I think before Discovery Mescal had been drinking almost exclusively tequila, I it was always that balance of wanting to party and go out. It's just like um, you know part of you know who I am, just being like a pretty social, outgoing person, uh, but also wanting to like feel good, like wanting to feel good, do what's good for my body, um, and so tequila seemed like the, the the right spirit for me, especially as I moved to LA and where it's really prominent. And then as I was drinking tequila, I just started to learn more about mezcal. And mezcal, I think for, for those of us who don't know or aren't familiar, is also an agave-based spirit. And what's amazing about mezcal, or maybe slightly unique, is that it can be made with you know various uh, varieties of agave, whereas tequila is only made with Blue Weber of agave. The other thing is mezcal can only be agave in water. And so what that translates to is that it can be often cleaner than a lot of other spirits, specifically tequila, which is cut or kind of there's additives or, you know, sugar or different things that are added, you know, during the, the production process. And so uh, it's something that I gravitated toward, the simplicity. Um, also love Mexico, it's such a beautiful country. And Oaxaca, which is considered the capital of mezcal, uh, where, where we actually make our mezcal as well, um, it's such a beautiful place. And so, you know, this is all kind of happening. Uh, Nate, you know, kind of through his own journey as well, you know, became really um, a big mezcal lover. And so uh, Rosuna is, I think, in certain ways, a reflection of our friendship and a manifestation of our friendship because we became very fast friends. We met through a mutual friend uh, who actually runs a, an incredible, um, you know, he started an incredible fashion brand called John Elliott. And, uh, you know, got introduced and we just became fast friends. We traveled together, we ran in similar social circles or hang out more together. And, um, and you know, we just would 
be out, you know, partying or having dinner and just like throwing out business ideas. Like, whoa, that, that just, we just get a lot of energy from that. And so Mescal came up pretty quickly or early in the conversation. And it just was one of those things that was a patient process. It wasn't rushed. I think what helped in our regard was that um, early on I was at MeUndies and then I actually had started a skincare brand and worked on that for a couple of years. And Nate was running a very creative, successful creative studio. Previously, he was one of the creative directors uh, with Kanye West as part of his collective uh, called Donda. So Nate, Nate has a very accomplished background as a creative director. And so we were all, you know, we certainly had more than our fair share of stuff to do on the work side. So it wasn't this, you know, kind of this automatic thought of like, oh, we should start a Mescal brand. It was just like considered a project and again, an excuse to spend more time together. And so fast forward, you know, we're the the concept becomes a little bit more clear to us. And I think our perspective was that Mescal in the U.S. and, and mind you, this was about five, six years ago. It felt very exclusive. It felt like you had to drink it a certain way enjoy it a certain way. It felt like there was these unwritten rules. And that was a very stark contrast to how we had experienced it in Mexico, where it's this like very open, inviting, vibrant, energetic spirit that people of all ages, all genders enjoy all throughout the day, cocktail, neat, on the rocks. And so we were like, huh, there's this, this like dichotomy of like what we're seeing and experiencing it in, it's in the homeland, if you will, in Mexico, um, but how it's, you know, being served up in, in, in the U.S. And so we're like, how do we bring it to that? I think it's very, you know, somewhat reflective of our personalities, which is just very like kind of open and you know, kind of light, friendly, you know, just like come to the table, you know, let's let's enjoy this together. And so that was, I think, one of the perspectives we wanted to lean into. Um, and, uh, you know, just one thing led to another. I was really blessed. Uh, we were really blessed to have... Um, so one of my best friends from college is, is Corey Rellis, and he's one of the co-founders of, of Drizzly. So Drizzly is a, an app that you know, helps connect you to the local liquor store and they'll deliver alcohol to your door. And having his guidance as someone who had worked in the industry um, was invaluable. Um, for those of us who don't know, alcohol, beverage alcohol is probably the highest, the most regulated consumer industry in the country. Uh, so coming out of the prohibition era, there were all these like regulations that, and rules that came out. And one of the main ones that every spirits brand deals with is the three tiered system. So, you know, maybe a slight contrast to like the, the direct to consumer model, but we can't as Rosaluna sell directly to you guys as the consumer, let alone the bar or the restaurant. We work through a distributor. So there's these three tiers of brand or the industry calls it supplier, the distributor, and then the you know the end customer, the retailer, right? So on-premise being bars and restaurants, off-premise being retail, or um, so. You know, we're we're learning about all this stuff, and and I think one of the many learnings that I had from Panacea because Panacea was, I think, one of the greatest teachers. It, the, the greatest That's the teacher beauty I've ever skincare? had. Yeah, it was a skincare brand that I had started with my brother, um, and another good friend of mine named Jason. Jason Charms, we, it taught me many things, but I think one of them was to be patient, to let things come together instead of kind of forcing things, if you will. And so we just, I think the feedback, the resounding feedback was, hey, 
make sure you have the right team, make sure you have distribution. And so you know, the idea came up, I would say early 2017, and we didn't launch the brand until three and a half years later. And it's reflected, I think somewhat, it's kind of a beautiful tie-in, but mezcal is a, it's a long process to produce mezcal. The agave has to age and mature to seven years, um, espadine, which is the agave that we use. And then only then, you know, after seven, eight years of maturity, uh, is it harvested and then, you know, cut, cooked and, you know, produced into mezcal. And so I think that also plays into the sustainable, like kind of play the long game approach you know, that <laughs> yeah. we were talking about earlier. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of some, some background and history on it. And mezcal has had, you know, I went to Mexico recently. I, I stayed in Mexico City for a week and um, I feel like mezcal is just rising in popularity yeah. and even in like not just in the United States, but even in Mexico itself. Yeah. Like what, what, what is the reason for that? Like, yeah, I think it's a confluence of things. Mm-hmm. I think consumers are becoming, I mean, this has been a trend for a while, but just more, more aware, more conscious of like what they're putting in their bodies. And more curious, right? More curious yeah. for sure. And, and holding brands accountable to that, right? Um, because of the increased transparency around just whether it's a production method or supply chain, et cetera. Um, even like business practices too. So I think you have that as like the, you know, the curious consumer, uh, the conscious consumer. Um, I also think there's been this just like trend and, 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 you know, there's, there's cycles, right. Within beverage alcohol of like things kind of coming in and out of the zeitgeist and agave is just having a moment right now. Um, and so the timing is not lost on us. And that's something that certainly outside of our control, but something that we feel really blessed about. And also, you know, we're, we're excited for the opportunity. I, I think there's, you know, going along with the, 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 the conscious consumer, I think there's this like trend toward cleaner products things that make you feel good alcohol is certainly alcohol at the end of the day but there are you know i would say certain alcohol or spirits that aren't as you know or maybe cleaner than others right and we put mezcal kind of in that category so i think it's probably a confluence of things that's exciting yeah. and then so I think it's really cool how you guys had the idea for a while and you like you guys sat on it and you were like, this is something we want to get to. And then you ultimately started um, moving on it. So what, what were the kind of first steps when you were like, OK, this is actually happening, right? Like what what needed to transpire? Um, what you know, what were the first steps on your end? But, you know, I know you mentioned um, you had some friends and you were like learning the ins and outs of like the industry and how do we actually get set up and sell this product, but like, you know, th then what came? Yeah, so one of them was just getting the right team in place, the right founding team. And Nate and I, we couldn't have predicted this, but we have very complementary skill sets. If you ask us like, what's the number one priority or the number one thing we're thinking about around the business, they're both relevant and like complementary, but different, you know, so. How would, you, how would you characterize, um, you know, you and Nate and your guys' yeah. relationship in, in, in the professional sense? Like, yeah. what, you're, what are you great at? Like, what's your superpower? Yeah. And then what's Nate's superpower and how they complement each other? Yeah, I think Nate, Nate's superpower is really around thinking about, like, storytelling and, like, brand narrative and the creative expression of that, the manifestation of that. 
I think it's it's a superpower of his. I also think Nate has really great aesthetic. He's got a great pulse on what's what's in and what's not, and that's something that we lean heavily into. Um, I would say my superpower is around around team building. I would say, and just like how do we now that we know where the vision is, what we're going for, how do we like band together and work toward it? Um, and certainly doesn't overlook like Nate's influence and impact on the team building side or my contribution on, you know, you know, kind of contributing to the brand narrative. But I would say there's certainly like kind of, you know, kind of clear complementary kind of skill sets there. Um, so I, I lean certainly more toward kind of the operations of the business, Nate, more kind of on the, the brand, the creative and the marketing, um, you certainly need both. Right. So. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how we think about it. And then once you guys, um, you know, started to come together and started yeah. to build things, um, what were the first steps like in terms of, yeah. you know, finding a, a producer, finding, um, you know, bottle, like how, what, what are all the components that, yeah. you know, go into coming up with your own, um, new spirit before you can actually sell it and give it to people and drink it and you know, yeah. then ultimately working your way up to restaurants. Yeah, I, I think I think brand building or like company building, it can seem a bit daunting, especially as like a first time founder. But it, it's quite simple, um, at least maybe how we thought about it, which is, all right, let's have a great team that will execute on the idea. Let's have an aligned vision um, around the brand and the story, which certainly started to become more contextualized, more clearer as we started to build further um product also came really top of mind we were really lucky enough to so one of our other co-founders pepe uh, very accomplished real estate developer uh, in mexico he was our connectivity to mexico and so we were able to meet with a bunch of different producers in oaxaca Um, this is actually kind of a cool story because we uh, it was the summer of 2017 and, oh, sorry. I mean, right when we came up with the idea, it was like the spring of 2017 and we were actually in snowbird skiing of all places in Utah. And Nate and I kind of came up with the idea for, you know, starting a mezcal brand and, you know, we're just kind of like fire. Like Nate, and I, Nate and I are also like the guys that like, if we have an idea or something, we're going to like do it right then and there. And so we're thinking about like, who do we know in Mexico that, you know, we could potentially tap into like that might know something about Mescal. And, and he's like, yo, like I just met someone actually happened in Miami. I was just in Miami and I met this really, you know, great guy. He's turned into a quick, you know, a fast friend. His name's Pepe. Let me just message him. And so Nate sent this like really thoughtful like text and we were like worried, like, you know, how's he going to take it? You know, we, we don't know. And he responded right away and he was so, he was so supportive. He was like, oh, like, you know, I've thought about wanting to do a project, you know, that would sell into the American market. And this is, this is exciting guys. If you guys are serious, let's meet in New York in a month. And so he came up to New York, you know, came through on his word and, and, uh, and then from there we were like, all right, we got to go to Oaxaca. We got to find, we got to try Mescal, find, find the right producer. And so we end up going to Oaxaca for Galagetza, which is the biggest, it's, it's their big annual festival. And it's, it's, a, it's a holiday that a lot of Mexicans will go to Oaxaca for. 
And so we were there and we land and we end up being the guests of honor for the governor and governess of Oaxaca. And it was just like an incredible experience. You know, they rolled out the red carpet. We're eating all this incredible food. And he, um, they introduced us to all these different producers. And it was everyone from like the mom and pop, like producer that like, you have a lot of like profound respect for like how they do things, but you're just like, there's no way they can scale, you know, efficiently to the other side where you're like, there was, you know, producers that could see the dollars, you know, and like saw the opportunity, but maybe didn't have the heart and soul that we were looking for. And we just met this brother and sister and, and also the mom, uh, you know, it's Frida or sorry, JJ, Frida and, and Vicky. And uh, it just, we kind of knew it at first sight, you know, it was one of those things we just were so lucky. And what was cool about it was we didn't talk business at first. We, they invited us to their hacienda in a small town called Santiago Matatlan. It's, it's in Oaxaca and sat down, had a three, four hour lunch. It's incredible Oaxacan food. By the way, like if you guys haven't been to Oaxaca, the food is amazing. Like even Mexicans say that like Oaxacan food is the best. Mm -hmm. So, it's really special and had this incredible lunch and just got to know their, their family, spend time with them. The way that they welcomed us, even though we were strangers, was just so, um, it was just so special and so memorable. And so from that, you know, we, we learned about how they had been, have been doing this for six generations and not only producing mezcal, but first and foremost, growing agave. So you talk to JJ, you talk to Frida, they don't, they don't introduce themselves as mezcal producers. We're magalleros, which means agave farmers. And that to us was like, wow, like it, it starts with the magay, the agave, you know? And uh, yeah, from there, we just have built this incredible years long friendship that has turned into a really fruitful partnership and hopefully one for many years to come. So the product was one, but that was one of those things where we just, frankly, we got lucky. Uh, another thing that might seem somewhat trivial, but I think a, f a good story kind of to share is that we came up with the name Rosaluna. And originally the name was Origen, which, is, which means origin in Spanish. So it was Origen and we're like, oh, this is interesting, you know, something there. And, and then Nate kind of one day was like, yo, what about Rosaluna? We just love the flow of it. And, really filled, it really fit into this narrative, like being fun and light and inviting and approachable. And also most spirits, I would say, but specifically in tequila and mezcal, were very masculine, black, very dominant. You think about like Jose Cuervo, Patron, Don Julio, it's like very masculine names. So we wanted to take like a kind of a slightly different stance, something that's much more approachable. And so it's now reflected, by the way, I think 70% of our consumers are, are women. And, uh, and so they came up with this name, Rosaluna, and we're like, oh, that, that's the one, you know? And we filed for a trademark and we, um, we didn't get the trademark at first. We got it in the US, but you have to get it in Mexico as well, because that's where we produce the, the spirit. And it was about a year that we didn't have the trademark. And so we were like, coming up with, you know, different names and alternatives. And I remember we had this spreadsheet that had like hundreds of alternative names. And we're like, we came to this conclusion after a lot of like wrestling with it. We were like, look, if we don't get Rosaluna, maybe this project is not meant to be. 
and uh, we ended up, I think Pepe had some connection. I, I don't, you know, again, we won't, we won't ask questions, but he had some connection and he made it happen. We got the trademark. And so that was a, a big turning point for us. And a reminder of like, you know, you can only, don't force things, let, let things come to you. And so, um, you know, three and a half years to launching the brand, but one of those years, especially, I remember was like agonizing. It was like summer 2018 to summer 2019. Cause we were like, is it gonna happen? Is it not? Is there another name? Like, what the fuck? Like you just kind of all these existential questions. And so, yeah, we got really, really lucky is the, the No, a name is one of, those, one of those things. And it's just interesting to hear how you, how you think about that. And it plays such a big part in the entire brand, right? And yeah. you could, you could, I'm sure many founders have been through this when they're like thinking through what, what to call their company and you have all the names down and you can't like, you can't force it, right? Yeah. It's, it's so got to feel right. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm, I'm reminded, I think there's this balance. I, you know, I think could argue in life, everything's about balance, but specifically in building a brand or, you know, being an entrepreneur or founder, there's this balance around when to be flexible and when to be precious and just really adamant about a certain way. And that's hard because they're, they're totally opposite ends of the spectrum. So unpicking and choosing those spots, when to be flexible versus when to be, you know, this is, it's this name or we're not doing it, I think is really important. Yeah, I think, you know, it's with a name is like, it's not like naming a company is easy or hard, but there's so much serendipity to it. Um, Because sometimes it just comes right. Sometimes the name comes before the company or the name just comes so easily and it's so fitting and or it's not as important. Um, And then sometimes it goes all the way to the extreme where you're like, Maybe it's not meant to be if the name isn't even coming together. Like, it can be that powerful. Yeah. 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 So, um, okay, so Rosaluna, how long ago did you start it? We launched it. I mean, the idea came up in 2017. So Mm -hmm. we've been working on it in some capacity since then. But we launched it in late 2020. 2020. And you guys are, what's the, you know, what's the main distribution channel? Is it? Yeah. Is it um, restaurants? Is it yeah. retailers? Yeah, both? it's right now. It's mostly bars and restaurants. So we think a lot about building the brand through what the industry calls the on-premise. So bars and restaurants, and uh, yeah. So that's kind of where our focus and energy goes toward. And so you can only buy it by the glass. Like you can't buy Rosa Luna. No, no. Bar. Sorry, we're we're in we're in liquor stores as okay. well. Um, we're, for example, in Miami. We're in the Total Wine. Okay. Uh, in a bunch of Total Wine store, um, locations, where, in, especially like in New York and Boston and LA and Austin, where we're pretty, you know, kind of well spread out, you know, kind of within liquor stores there too. So sweet. And you know, where where are you guys headed now? Like, you yeah. know, are you guys trying to just double down on this channel? Are you working on partnerships with? you know, other, other partners, big, you know, whether it's influencers, celebrities, other companies. um. Yeah. So I would say it's just more of what we've been doing and just staying focused in that probably getting even more focused, but this is going back to this thought of like building is like the most fun part that that's the phase that we're in. And so there's no, we were talking about it today. There's no silver bullet for building a brand. You guys know this. And 
I think especially in beverage alcohol, it's very, it's very grassroots. It's very organic. It's very brick by brick, account by account, day by day mentality. And it can seem a bit counterintuitive, especially, I think, seeing some of the valuations and growth of other companies, it's somewhat like kind of mind boggling to even compare, right? But I think we just kind of stay the course. And there was a, there was a principle that I, a principle or a quote that I read um, from the Airbnb guys early on and they're, you know, as they were building Airbnb and their, their whole mentality was do things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. It sounds counterintuitive, but so right. Like the best way to scale is to do things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. And for us, what that means is building, going deep. So building deep relationships with key accounts and knowing the name of every staff at those accounts showing up, bringing our friends, drinking Rosaluna, bringing a great time and doing that over and over. That's what has you here in Miami, right? Yeah. So you just keep, you just do this around the nation, you know, take care of, yeah. of, of the accounts, build the relationships with the restaurants, yeah. um, which doesn't scale, but it, it for sure, you know, you are completely set apart from all those other distributors that just drop off the bottles and sign a paper and say goodbye. Yeah, well, and I, I think uh, exactly, that's our strategy, that's our approach. It, I wouldn't say it doesn't scale. I would say it doesn't scale for me to do that. Right, for sure, every totally. Every play. But what, what is really interesting about brands, and you can use some of the iconic brands that come to mind, right? Uh, this is how they were built. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's, there's this like ripple effect. There's like this emanating effect that happens where you do it in this, you know, one street or one intersection of New York City and it starts to build and you start to kind of own a, a street and then a, an area, then a borough, then a, you know, a city and then a, you know, country. And it kind of builds from there. So. <laughs> Not, not because you can't, you know, attach attribution to it or a direct ROI means, you know, that, that you shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the, certainly we want to make our effort count, right? Because as a startup, you have limited resources, limited time. So figuring out ways where we can measure our effort and quantify impact is, is really important. Um, so, yeah, but, but also I think understanding that Brand building, it's, that's often some of the hardest, you know, kind of part to reconcile with is that, you know, how do you measure like brand awareness? How do you measure someone seeing your brand? Yeah, maybe they don't purchase right away, but, you know, I think the brand recall, like for, I think there's like an average, some stat around like you have to see or experience a brand, you know, eight to 10 times before you end up buying. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So like, how do you, you know, for us, like, how do we, how do we show up at your lo- local liquor store and we're on the cocktail menu? And then you, oh, by the way, you know, you're at, you're at this event, you know, next week and, you know, Rosen is served there and, you know, you're on your way home and your friend's like, oh yeah, like, hey, let's go into this like dive bar that we're in. Oh, you know, you see Rosen there, you know, so it like kind of happens through that way. Yep. And I, I think that's such a great way to think about brand because what's, what what's challenging and what with spirits and what you guys are building is you really need to build that like compounding network effect of 
um, of density, right? Like with in terms of like customer brand awareness. And then when those customers are aware of the, of the brand, yeah. they need to be able to access it, which is like what I love yeah. about like what you, what you guys have done in Miami, for example, whenever I, if I, if I, if ever I'm out and I need mezcal, like pretty much all the restaurants I go to yeah. and all the, you know, the total wine and all the restaurants, like it's there. Right. And it's, it's like Terry is saying, it's been snowballing and it takes time and it takes effort, but then you get to that density. Right. And then, it ripples and and now it's not just Miami it's the next city it's and and then you're everywhere in the world right yeah. but but really being strategic about where you start where do you grow next where who's the next account right who's the next distributor um, and then how is at the same time how do you match that with your customer base who's yeah. growing at a similar rate it's a really fascinating like yeah, yeah marketplace sort of type issue to solve is, is there ever a point where and i don't know if this has happened yet in your journey or not where like the snowballing effect like the table flips and like you have to either turn down restaurants or bars or people start coming to you um you know is is that something that has happened or i mean it's bound to happen i, I feel like yeah for sure i mean i, w I would say we've gotten more convicted in that and the way that we talk about this is focusing. So another way to look at focus is if you're focused, you should be saying no far more times than you say yes. And look, when you're first starting a brand, we're kind of like finding our own feet. And so we found ourselves saying yes far more times than we said no last year. And I think there was part, you know, kind of glamour and like, oh, like, you know, people want us or, you know, you know, we could go here, we could go there. And uh, I think the difference between last year and this year we, is we just have, we just have more security in who we are and where we're at in our stage. And yes, we want to be that mezcal for everybody down the road, but we're, not today. We can't be. You know, the brand is still fledgling. You know, it has to be cultivated and you know built and refined and curated in the right way. So I think our thought is like, how do we show up in the right places? and understanding who our customer is, tying it to that. That's, that's kind of what we've been doing. And, and I, I think at the end of the day, like what is one of the biggest reasons that a, a startup succeeds or fails? Their ability to focus or the lack of focus. And so that's something that we think about a lot. Um, so. Well, anyway, Terry, um, you know, just want to thank you for for joining us today. Yeah, it was it was guys. so much fun. We're we're super pumped to see um, Rosa Luna continue to grow. <laughs> That's um, I love I love the conversation in terms of like it was it was very philosophical about how do you build a business, how do you cultivate a brand right like that's that's what it's all about and how do you make sure you're you're focused on the right spots at the right times right yeah, It's yeah. not it's not just about um, you know just totally scaling too fast when you can't support it's about doing things at the right pace with the right intention um so we really love that philosophy um and i guess as we wrap up you know for our listeners anyone listening where where can they find you where can they find rosa yeah. luna um yeah shout it out yeah we're uh we're currently distributed in a few key markets so new york is our biggest and la austin miami boston so hopefully if you know we're we're already at your kind of favorite bar or restaurant and if we're not please ask for us <laughs> uh but yeah that's that's kind of where you can find us and we have a website mescalrosaluna.com our instagram is rosaluna that's probably the 
you know, probably the best reflection of, you know, kind of our community and what we're building. So yeah, shout out to guys. the Instagram. I took a look at it. The creative is crazy. <laughs> so when you said that Nate worked on a creative, it all clicked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a great team. Nate, yeah. Nate's certainly leading the vision for it. Yeah. But we have a great team as well. And um, yeah, no, thank you guys for the opportunity. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Thank so. you, Terry. This is awesome.